Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloom Microphones. Heirloom Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloom, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wenasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey guys, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. And today we have a great guest with us, Nick Sampson. How you doing, Nick? I'm good, how are you? Pretty good. For those of you who don't know, Nick Sampson, he was originally a guitar player in I'm Abomination and then uh, basically branched out to do some production and worked under me for a number of years and now has branched out on his own, has his own manager and runs his own productions and he's a badass producer and also an amazing I will say one of the most amazing guitar players I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. No, you're good, man. You're really good. Uh, and Thank let's, you. I want to start this with something that I find interesting because I noticed that not only do you have a passion for writing music and, and playing guitar, but you have a passion for building guitars. And yeah. I don't know if a lot of people know that about you. So let's talk a little bit about building guitars because, first of all, I don't know the first thing about building a guitar, so teach me. Yeah, why do, Why would you want to do that in the first place? Why not just buy them? Well, when I was coming up, uh, I had I loved the Ibanez S-Series, and that was like my favorite guitar of all time. But Plus I, one on that. Yeah, I hated the fact that it only had 22 frets, though. That was like they changed it and I bought it as soon as they changed it but things like that like little inconveniences that as a player I would experience coming up I can rectify those by myself now with I mean we have a CNC mill and it pretty much if anybody's familiar with CAD programs um, you draw the shape of the guitar into the program and then once you have those lines there's a program called computer-aided machining program, then you can take those lines and convert them into paths for the, the router to follow, pretty much. So you put a block of wood on this machine, and if you know what you're doing, and you screw a few of them up first, like I did, you'll be able to you know wind up with a guitar body that you designed yourself and is all ready to go. And I really, I really wanted to do it because I have, I mean, as a producer and a guitar player, there's common problems between both things that I, I think can be rectified. And I've been working on something that's pretty cool for both sides of that. Like, it'll help me in my production career and as a guitar player. So just having the capability to do that is really awesome. Um, I've always been interested in designing things. So uh, it was it just kind of worked out, you know. I, uh, I, YouTube is like a goldmine for knowledge nowadays. So 
you just type in CNC guitar on YouTube and you'll find tons of tutorials on like how people get it done. Do you ever find that some of these uh, custom guitar shops that everyone thinks are so awesome make some really crappy guitars compared to just your regular run-of-the-mill production line model from like your regular guitar company, like ESP um, or something? Well, I, I have more experience with uh, ESP, Ibanez, Gibson, Fender than I do with the custom brands. But what I've I've noticed, I've had a few custom guitars come through the studio. Uh, I worked with a band called The After Image, and they they brought in a Strandberg Bowden, and it was the first time I'd ever seen one of those in person. And I oh, those are it, really good. Yeah, I picked it up, and the neck was flat on the back, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, this is a flat neck, and I noticed that it it was more of a trapezoid shape, and and like the flat part actually started turning. Um, towards the the treble side of the neck down and what that does is guide your thumb to the right spot in the neck to keep your hand posture where it should be and that that's like something that's just incredible in my mind because they've they've been using the you know the tangent circle across the width of a guitar to make the neck shape for so long but like that just that alone like serves a purpose you know it's a, a guitar shape a neck is circular for a reason so it's like uniform throughout the entire, it has a consistent radius throughout the entire travel. But this is like throwing that out the window and it's like, okay, instead of that, we're going to make your thumb be in the perfect spot so you don't get carpal tunnel and you can play for longer and your posture will be better and you'll develop better muscle strength. You had to pick one of the only companies that that I wasn't talking about. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Strandberg make great guitars. I know what you're saying. Um, I, I've seen like an influx uh, of those black machine guitars. Um, they've had a lot of hype for a while, but I, I see a lot of people copying them now because it was like, it's something that's been like a, a dem in demand for so long. And I mean, I, I can't blame them because so many people want those guitars and uh, the guy just, he can't produce them because he refuses to, you know, use a machine or like mass produces guitars, which is commendable because the guy hand builds them. And, and trust me, like you think audio stuff is challenging, like try working with wood because it's like, it's ridiculous. It's unpredictable. It moves. It, it was a living thing at one time. If you set it in a, a room that has one degree of humidity difference, it will warp on you. And then you can't really do anything from there. So like, I respect woodworkers a lot, and uh, that, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I've had, I won't name any names, but I've had my hands on a couple really crappy guitars that had a big price tag on them that shouldn't have a, that kind of price tag, for sure. Yeah, I've just noticed that they have, uh, I mean, with the exception of these really good brands, like Strandberg or something, I've noticed that these homemade guitars mm. have balance issues, and there's always something wrong with them that the uh, that the big brands have figured out a long time ago. So how do you make sure, like, how did you overcome just like the basics, like getting a, a balanced guitar or one that stays in tune, you know, things like that. How do you overcome those things? How come, or how have you been able to overcome that? And then these guys that charge $5,000, how did they not figure it out? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of common sense to a certain point. I mean, the guitar has weight, it has most of its weight in a certain area, which is the body. Some, sometimes the, the body is lighter than the neck, but that's not good because you'll have neck dive. Like on an SG, your tuning machines are a lot heavier than you think they are. Um, they'll dive, the neck will dive if the body isn't light enough. So like you have to find the center of gravity 
or the fulcrum point rather between the weight shift. So what I did there is in the, the CAD program I have, there's material analysis. And once you make the 3D model of the guitar, you can assign a certain density to it. You look up the density of the wood that you'll be using or like combination of materials and you'll get a density. So like you have a weight there and then you do that for every piece of the guitar that you build. And some of it's guesswork. Uh, I got lucky with mine. I, I, I ended up putting the fulcrum point, which is the upper horn where most people have their strap. I think it's in line with the 13th or 14th fret, but when you have it there, if you've ever taken a pencil and set it on your finger and found the fulcrum point, like that's what you're looking for when it comes to balance when you're standing up with a guitar. So I actually got pretty lucky with mine, but um, so all the, the material analysis and stuff wasn't too necessary. But yeah, stuff like that, um, intonation is a huge thing um, that sometimes you'll get these guitars that like are supposed to be, you know, real nice guitars and they're real expensive, but the the bridge is like too far forward you know and in my experience like some of these bridges if you go by what the manufacturer says to like as far as distance between for the saddles a lot of that stuff is wrong because i've moved mine back an eighth inch from what they had said on a hip shot bridge it just i guess you can't trust everything you read online but i ended up having to buy shorter saddles for one of mine because i couldn't get it to intonate but now that i know that that's that's just one of the things and I think some of these smaller guys are like, they don't have the wisdom that these companies have, you know? That's something that you pay for when you buy a guitar from, you know, Ibanez or Fender or Gibson. They've been doing it for years and they know exactly what they need to do. And some of the people yeah. that try new ideas, like maybe those companies weren't doing those ideas because, you know, they didn't work or it was going to sacrifice some other part of the guitar. Well, I just think that people should realize that uh, just because it's boutique doesn't mean it's good. And just because, yeah. um, you know, it, just because it's made by a big company doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, it's probably the, you know, the mid-level for one of those mass-made guitars is probably better than the majority of homemade guitars. But then, of course, some of the boutique companies make the most exquisite instruments you could ever find, of course. But uh, yeah. in, gen in general, I think that unless you have, if you find a guitar maker that really cares and is really smart and really talented, you're better off staying away. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I firmly believe that you should get your hands on something before you actually commit to buying it. And that's one thing that does suck with the boutique market is that you really don't get a chance because a lot of these guys have waiting lists that are like years long and the hype is up, you want the guitar, you like can't wait to get it. So you put your deposit down and then you pay for it and you get it. And you might not like it, you know, you might you might like a thinner or a thicker neck. But um what I try to focus on is more of like functionality and practicality in my designs. Like I, I wanna I don't want to be held down the way guitars are designed now, you have a piece of wood with holes in it, and these holes accept certain components. And people are changing their mind on which pickups and which bridge and like, you know, which pots, which capacitors, which everything sounds good. I just want to be able to d change all that like on the fly, you know, and that's possible with what I've done. So hopefully once it's all figured out and R&D ready for the market, uh, I'll, I'll unveil it and make it happen. Yeah, I would, awesome. I would say that there's probably 
some large issue with mass production, right? I mean, that's... Oh, actually, it's... That's the thing. It's with the design. Are you talking in regards to the design I have? No, in, in regards to the to the other manufacturers who are oh. faced with the problems of, of having to meet the, the quota needs and the things like that, where you're not necessarily concerned with that as a... As a a custom, you know, if you're if you're building your own guitars, and you don't have to make three thousand of them by the next, you know, quarter or whatever, like mm-hmm. that's you can change the the quality level of the guitar drastically because there's no mass market concerns. Exactly. Yeah, more time can go into planning the design, choosing woods that will work good for the design and like the tonal characteristics that the customers after you just can't do that when you go to guitar center and pick up a les paul you know you can't like no no you can't do that if you go to guitar center but you can do that if you go to the la custom shop for ibanez or something yeah well i mean i luckily got to visit that place but you know your average guy isn't gonna get a chance to you know step into lag no no you're you're absolutely right yeah but I mean, it would be cool to make uh, the average guitar player be able to, you know, modify their own guitars. And if they if they want that cool new Evertune bridge that just came out, why not make it possible <laughs> for them to put it in their guitar and not route a giant hole in it? You know, um, that's <laughs> that's that's the business right there. I think that's where it should be. Well, there is a lot of trial and error in that stuff too. I mean, I'll give you an example. I built a custom guitar with Warmoth, okay. and I bought a bunch of things that I thought would have been really awesome. And I mean, this is like. 10 years ago, maybe even longer. And as soon as I got the guitar and I slapped it together and got everything set and put together, um, there was immediately a couple of flaws of things that I thought would be cool that I wish I could change, but I'd already sunk like 17 or 1800 bucks into just the parts. And I had already waited six months to get the guitar. And mm-hmm. it was like, there was no going back. I couldn't change that reverse headstock to a normal headstock because I didn't like the tension on the low E string. Oh, you chose a okay. reverse headstock. Yeah bummer (laughs) yeah i wanted to try it i thought it would be cool i let the internet influence my decision and then when i got one i'm like i absolutely hate reverse headstocks and i never ever want to play one again yeah they're they're different for the look and everything like uh but i mean if it it depends like because if you were to have like a you know a floyd rose nut on that guitar like a floyd rose tremolo it it wouldn't have mattered because your your fulcrum for your strings is clamped so hard that What's going on past the nut, like, really doesn't matter too much, you know. Like, certain things like that will change the way that that stuff happens. Headstock angle, for example. If did it, did you you ordered it from Warmoth? You said right. Yeah. So it, I'm assuming it was just like a flat sawn plank that they like. Fender necks are a lot different than like Ibanez or Gibson necks. I got it made to Ibanez specifications because I grew up playing an S, and I've got my you know 10,000 hours of guitar playing on an Ibanez S series from like '96 or seven with a Wizard uh, one neck, you know, like the thin good one that oh, they yeah. discontinued. That is absolutely the best guitar neck ever made, in my opinion. At least that I've ever played. And uh, so I I grew up playing that kind of guitar. So, you know, I wanted like a cool flying V because I was playing in a metal band at the time. And so I tried to have them make it to Ibanez specifications. But when I got it back, like the neck was too thick and just everything felt a little bit off. And while I love the guitar and it played great, there was just a lot of design things. I think I screwed up. And if I had to do it again, I definitely know what I would change. Yeah. The the funny thing about Ibanez necks is I ran into this issue too. if you're trying to use like a standard truss rod that like Fender or Gibson uses, like a dual action, it's too the height of the rod is too much. Like 
because you only have so much room in a neck. You have the fretboard wood and the neck wood glued together. And before you glue those together, you route a channel in the top side of the neck blank, which is usually three quarters of an inch thick. And so most of those truss rods are like just under, you know, they're probably a little less than a half inch thick, maybe like 475 thousandths or so tall. So you have that and then you start carving your neck away and you want to make it, you know, like, like a wizard neck somewhere around three quarters inch total. So that means that the neck wood has to go down to a, a half inch. So now you have like 40 thousandths of material behind this rod that's exerting crazy amounts of force to counteract the tension of your strings. And, you know, what could happen is that that rod will just bust right through the back of the neck. So Ibanez uses lower profile truss rods that are, it's a different design. They're about a quarter inch, maybe a little taller than that. But that allows you to, you know, bring that neck thickness down and things like that are that takes a while to you know pick up on but like companies like Wormuth I think are they're fender standard like they're if you if you buy a guitar from them it's going to have you know n- no headstock angle unless they have that as an option now I'm not sure but uh fender necks they don't do scarf joints the a fender neck is made from one billet of wood as opposed to like an Ibanez neck they'll they'll cut an angle on top of the headstock flip it around and glue it back together and then that gives you the headstock which is at like an 11 degree angle or so and that provides even string pull behind the nut instead of having your... Because uh, the strings in the middle of the neck are going to be higher. And when they come down to the tuning pegs, they have to you know, have some kind of angle to hold them tightly in that nut slot. So with the... Question about this, the whole idea of a nut, because I saw something on Facebook the other day. I know what you're talking about. It looks sick. Yeah, so tell me about this. Do you know about this? Are you talking about the brass uh, modular nut? Thing that yeah okay yeah. I'd have to have real experience with it because everything that I've learned and picked up on I've basically been taught by what I've learned that that nut slot should be really close to what your string gauge is and that will ensure it it won't move side to side and give you intonation issues the fulcrum point of the nut is where the f- the string first meets the actual nut material and I was taught to file that slot downwards at an angle. So that fulcrum point is sharp, but then the, the string has an angle down. So it, you know, kind of holds tightly in the slot with those. You can't get machining cutters that will machine brass without breaking consistently that will be able to give you a tight slot like that. So what he had going on was like a, a rounded contour and it was on a base. So, I mean, that might give you a little more freedom, but I can imagine on that low string that that nut shifting side to side in those those pegs. But who knows? I mean, it could be revolutionary. I love it. I think that's great because that would make manufacturing the guitar so much easier and like designing the string spacing would be a lot easier. Um you could if you th- if those are threaded, which I assume they are, um you could even put a really fine thread on those and adjust your nut height like that. And that's brilliant. Because that's I'm something. Gonna this, uh, I'm going to send this to Al and Jules just so they know what we're talking about here. Yeah, I just know you're talking about nuts. <laughs> I have no idea what else. <laughs> I think I saw this on my newsfeed the other day. Let me just say that. Okay, so here's the thing that I find interesting about this is that, like, like, okay, with a nut, you've got the entire 
it's 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 one large piece of of something, some kind of material. It could be bone, it could be plastic, whatever. Mm-hmm. And all of the strings contribute to the vibration of this little piece that's connected to the wood. So by having this broken down into modular units and and having a, a individual unit per string, now the vibration is not contributing to the entire piece and and this. And we're talking about micro amounts, you know, this, yeah. this nut's not moving, it's moving by very micro tiny amounts because it's glued to the wood. But if you separate that, I wonder if that imparts something to the tone or at least the intonation, because I, I feel like... Dude, it, it has to, it has to, the different, every type of nut that you get has a completely different effect on the way the guitar sounds. So that, it has to have a major effect. Yeah. A lot of that opinion. has to do with the density and the materials property to reject absorption of the sound. If you watch a YouTube series, PRS put one out called rules of tone. He'll have all their different nut materials and he'll drop them on the table and show you how different they sound when they hit the table because of the different densities of the material. And the whole goal is to make sure that the energy stays inside the string between the nut and the bridge for sustain. Because if it, if you hit your string, you exert the energy on the string, the waves start to travel up and down it. If, th- if that energy can leave that area, it, your string is going to sustain less than if it were to stay in there and feedback and continue to vibrate that string. So I think that that... Like, have you ever used Graftec saddles or a Graftec nut, yeah, for instance? the past few builds Yeah, I've they done. kill it. Yeah, they're nice. Yeah, they w- yeah, they will. Uh, they get rid of a lot of um, a lot of stuff you don't want, which is completely different than other kinds I've had. So yeah, I think that I don't know. I'm just I don't know anything about building guitars, but that seems to me like it would be a major change. Yeah, Graftech's a really awesome company. They their website's killer. You, if because I'm dealing with different dimensions of nut width and like. Uh, margin between the first and last strings and the edge of the neck and all the time. And they have like really good dimensions about everything. There's a lots of good documentation about the material, their tusk material that they use. And it, I mean, I've used a, a bunch of different nut materials and the tusk is like my favorite right now. I can't find anything else that I would like better, but I mean, there's always more things to try. So do you set up the guitars for all your clients? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know how it is. Like, you, you pull the guitar out of the case yeah. after a tour, and, like, there's green gunk on the bridge saddles, and it's way out of tune. And, like, the neck, the truss rod is just cranked so hard because they have, like, a 80-gauge string on there, and they, it keeps going sharp. But, yeah, like, I, I definitely have to do that every time bands come in. Some bands are good about it, like, if, if their guitar players are into that. But I've noticed that a lot of guitar players just don't care about this, you know. I mean, they care about their setups. It's just like they don't care to learn everything there is to know about setting up a guitar. And that's important for recording because if, you, if your neck is bowed, like if you have too much relief in your neck, you will throw your intonation off completely. And that's a big problem, too, because you can adjust the bridge all you want, but you're not going to get it into margin because when the neck is bowed, it's not on a flat plane. It, it, it takes a circular radius kind of plane, and then it, that moves the frets in relation to the nut and the bridge. So it's a balancing act for sure. But yeah, I, I try to make sure that every guitar that comes in is set up to its full potential before we put it on tape, you know? Yeah, I've noticed it's not just guitar players who tour or anything or anything like that. I think even guys who take it to 
their own techs or a guitar center or who try to do it themselves typically end up just doing a really, really bad job. And I end up having the same tech come out every single time um, to do it. So I figured that with you knowing as much as you do, you probably nine out of 10 times end up fixing the guitars for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a really good and useful skill to learn. I mean, I think probably in my experience, seven out of every 10 bands that I've ever recorded in my career, I've had to do some sort of setup or reintonation or truss rod adjustment on the guitar just because no one knows how to do it. Well, no one can play guitar to begin, to begin with in the first place anymore. <laughs> that, that's a different... That's they, a different topic. If they can't play the damn guitar, how the hell are they going to learn to set up? Because yeah. they don't even know what a good setup or a good action is. or you know, It's just way out of the the power of their abilities and their brain to comp- or comprehend that sort of thing. So, you know, you have to do it. So I got a fun one here, Nick, for you. Um, I had a friend who used to take guitar lessons from me many years ago, and he's a machinist guy or whatever, an older guy. He built a guitar out of magnesium, and he brought it over. Wow. And it was a very interesting thing to play because he was like, you know, I heard all these aluminum guitars, and they sound like shit. Check this out. I made a guitar out of magnesium, and he hit it with like a wrench or something, and it had kind of like a really nice tone to it versus the aluminum one he had brought over. And it, it was interesting to play. It was definitely, um, you know, it's a guitar made out of freaking magnesium, like solid. Yeah. Uh, it sounded cool. It was kind of metallic sounding. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. But it, what do you think about something like that? That that sounds pretty radical. I mean, the only experience I've had with magnesium is with a, a fire starter. My dad bought me one when I was like 12 and he, he basically just taught me about it. It's just like a survival, you know, kind of thing. It has a little piece of magnesium and you scrape little chips of it off. And then there's a piece of flint that you strike and it burns like very hot and very fast. So yeah, I, can I was admit- warned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool thing though. I'd like to see that. You email me a picture of it or something. That'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, I, kind of lost contact with him and I, I mean maybe his email still works but I mean this is probably like seven or eight years ago mm. they had made it and I don't think they ever came to a full production run or anything like that it was just kind of like two guys out of their house and uh, you know bootstrapping it they didn't really have a lot of money to play with and it was kind of just their hobby and they always you know tinkered around with guitar their whole lives but they never really you know took it super seriously but they were more into like building them and things like that yeah once you get into building them, it's like you get a newfound respect for the instrument and even the people who like put them together because there's so many variables that will, I mean, one thing about your design change could completely change the entire sound of the entire guitar. So like there's so much work and R&D that goes into this stuff. It's, I, I love to see people experimenting. Like I've seen guitars made out of aluminum. The 3D printed guitars are cool. Well, I got one. I saw a guy that had a toilet seat converted into a guitar, <laughs> like no shit. It was like he cut it off and he put strings and a bridge on it and pickups on it and yeah. uh, glued on a neck. And he had a freaking toilet seat guitar. And on the top, right, he had like the little thing that screws in with some toilet paper. The band was called like the, he- the Heavils or the Hevels or something like that. And I forgot what label they were on. But again, this is like 10 years ago. And uh, that was one of the craziest guitars I've ever seen. It didn't sound terrible, but it was a legitimate toilet seat guitar. It didn't sound like shit? No. I mean, <laughs> I, I only saw them once live, and it, the record sounded pretty good. That was good. a good joke, Nick. Uh, thanks, dude. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that one. <laughs> oh, man, I totally missed that. <laughs> yeah, dude, that just flew right over no, your head. No, I, uh, I, I've seen stuff like that before. I've seen, like, coffee cans. Uh, cigar boxes are a big thing. It's like a Fender kind of— Fender made a cardboard guitar. 
Yeah, the, and it sounded like a damn Strat, and that was that was insane. You gonna make the 500 series lunchbox guitar now? That, <laughs> uh, honestly, like low output guitar. That's kind of what I have. Honestly, I'm not even, not even joking. Like I have something to that kind of format. <laughs> that you've got me captivated because I'm kind of in always wanted to get a new guitar because I've always been unhappy with the ones that I have. Like I love my S series, but again, it's only 22 frets. Mm-hmm. And then all of my 24 fret RGs um, have that stupid bolt on neck bullshit where you can't get your hand up to the 24th fret. So I had to have them all scalloped out. Yeah. And uh, there, there's just always some sort of compromise or trade off that I hate. Like the S I don't like the pickups, you know, I wish I could throw something in there that, that sounded good, but the you're very limited to what you could get and it's just there's no cavity and i wanted to throw some actives in there because you know i want to play some rhythm guitar metal shit but yeah. it just didn't it just wouldn't work you know you couldn't throw like a pair of emgs back in the day into a, a 90s ibanez s it's literally there's just no room yeah yeah that's 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 what i aim to do i'm trying to develop a form factor just like api did taking the you know the 550 eqs from a from a console at first and then they released them in 19 inch rack format and now they're in these little tiny formats and you can have like eight of them in there and pull them out if you don't like them anymore and put something else in there that's the whole kind of concept that i'm going for i'd like for guitar players to be able to be curious about new pickups or new bridge and not be intimidated about the fact that it's hard to you know put in or impossible to put in and what they have if i didn't have to solder them i would literally own every single pickup on earth yeah. just so i could flip them out in a session and be like here let's try this pickup yeah that sounds like shit let's try this one guys yeah what do you think all right that's a guitar tone hit record yep yeah that's yeah. that's how it is it's it's think of think of like a, a db25 connector and how it has that you know kind of fit when you push it in um yeah. each mm-hmm. each pickup well, you could use five channels, but um, there's a north. Each coil has a finish and a start. So there's in a humbucker, there's two coils. So there's four four channels right there, and then you have a ground, which can be common. But I'm developing a wiring harness that will support up to three humbucking pickups because you don't need any more than that. <laughs> but I need eight. <laughs> well, there's a company called Sickfy <laughs> that makes quad coil pickups, and they're really sweet. They have Interesting. Uh, yeah, they're they have a a 20 to 20,000 response. They're insane. They're absolutely nuts. I can't I'll, wait to just high and low pass that when I get it into the <laughs> computer anyways. So <laughs> yeah, he, he sells 20 to 20,000, 20 to 20,000. Yeah. No shit. Awesome. Yeah. So I mean, Dude, that 16 K sounds awesome on that solo. <laughs> yeah. The clean, the clean tones would be sweet. Definitely. Some sparkles, but yeah, there, there's all kinds of new stuff coming out and, it's it's a shame that people can't you know embrace it to to its fullest because there is that gap between buying a pickup and having the pickup in your guitar playing you know you have to take it to somebody like maybe it won't fit because the you know the legs are too long like that's the kind of stuff I'd like to alleviate and just make it okay I have a set of single coils a set of EMGs and some P90s and I'd like to use them on one song you know and make that recording session, you know, be able to happen without any soldering or anything and even changing your bridge that the Evertune, I don't know if you guys have talked about this at all, but any of you have experience have, with it? I have experience with people telling me that I should have experience with it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool, man. <laughs> you got to check it out. It's pretty revolutionary. It keeps the, the damn thing in tune. Like there's nothing more to it. Like you can beat on the strings as hard as you can and it will not 
deviate from that tuning. It's insane. But I mean, it had- yeah, I saw one at Joey's and it kind of blew my mind. And I don't know, part of me is really scared to pick it up because I, I've learned to play with such a hand sensitivity over so many hours of guitar playing. But the other part of me is like, man, think of all the shitty guitar players that come in that can't, you know, they like, oh, they, they monkey power grip the the fret, you know, and every yeah. note goes a quarter step sharp. And, you know, the, the typical intonation problems guitar players have because they suck uh-huh. and they don't actually learn how to play properly. And um, it would really be, I think, amazing and alleviate a lot of those problems. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think people are intimidated by the Evertune, they shouldn't be because you can set the thing up and it's not, when I say set up, I don't mean like screwdrivers or anything. I'm talking turning the tuning pegs. If you want the guitar to respond to your bending, just like any other guitar, all you have to do is tighten your tuning peg until you reach... I guess they call it zone two. It could be zone one. I don't. I don't know. But like, once the damn string starts to go sharp, you back it off a little bit, and then then you're in a normal guitar mode. But if you if you don't want the string to bend at all, if you're recording like clean chords or like chord ringouts or something, just slack slack all the tuning heads, and then your guitar. You know, it's a straight straight. It's a piano at that point. So. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. Zone one, zone two sounds like an airport parking deck or something, yeah. but that's cool. So do you ever think that guitar um, will be innovated or guitar innovations will come to a point where guitar is no longer a fucked up instrument that just is badly designed and sucks? Yeah. I mean, a lot of those come from, I mean, intonation issues and th- that comes from wood moving. Like I was saying how the neck relief can cause intonation issues and mm-hmm. Wood wood has been used for a while because it's it's you know it's hard it's durable but like there's downsides to it it's it absorbs moisture it when it gives that moisture off it moves you know it's it it's not stable like a a piece of aluminum or something would be but I think once guitars uh, Aristides is using their injection molding their guitars with some crazy Aristides let me just say something I just recorded one of those with monuments uh-huh. on my creative live class okay. man those are good yeah those are really really good yeah and that's yeah that's one of the new like breakthrough non-wood guitars they they're making guitars that have not one lick of wood on them they're the fretboard i've seen in one of their builds that had a rich light fretboard which is like a a hemp paper pressed with a phenolic resin and under high pressure so if you think about it it's kind of kind of like a tree but not really but there's layers and they're all compressed together over time and that is that stuff is very strong like they they make countertops out of it and it outperforms granite and cantilever tests and all kinds of things like they claim they claim it's stronger than stone which is insane let me just say that these aristides guitars are fucking loud as hell too yeah. like playing them unplugged they're considerably louder the ones that i was around sound about as loud as a hollow body does wow, yeah unplugged i mean they put out a lot of volume and they sound phenomenal so maybe that is a step into the future yeah i i fully support alternative materials for guitars because a lot of these exotic woods are becoming harder to source and it's becoming a political issue and you're using certain woods and like it's not worth it man like <laughs> gibson yeah <coughs> gibson yeah and uh i did uh, did i just cough yeah <laughs> Did you? I don't know. <laughs> it could have been a cackle. It sounded like a cackle. Yeah, I think it was a cackle. But yeah, I know those legal issues are crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not worth you know extincting a species of tree just to have a black fretboard. You know, like 
Ebony, Ebony, hold on a second. Hold on. I'll extinct uh, the rhino so I can get that rhino horn nut on my guitar. <laughs> I'm more than happy to do that. Sorry oh, for all you rhino activists out there. <laughs> yeah, some rhino. I'll be that guy. Someone's got to bear that. You're gonna get get us all killed. Oh. Yeah. Here it comes. <laughs> Here it comes. Right. Yeah, but I mean, alternative materials are. I think that's where it's at. I think people should experiment with that more. And I, and I'm biased because I hate working with wood. It annoys me really bad. Like I'll have a, a blank of wood sitting in, a, in my humidity control. I'll measure it, measure the moisture content. And I'll come back a week later and the thing will be twisted like a Twizzler. And I'm just like, damn it. You know, I just wasted like a hundred bucks on this wood. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to alleviate that. You would think that's something that came around for use in like the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, you'd think that we would have figured out a better way to do it by now, better materials to use, you know? Yeah, well, I, guitar players are stuck in their ways. I mean, people are still buying Strats and Les Pauls. If you go to a guitar center, that's all you'll see is Strats and Les Pauls. I guess that's why, because people buy them. But I mean, come on, there's so much more stuff to mess with i mean they made televisions out of wood in 1600 but now we've got much better materials for televisions i figured that they would have figured it out by now with guitars too yeah so guitar players are stuck in their ways though i i'm guilty of it sometimes but i'm trying to alleviate that like i'm trying to make sure that i keep an open mind for the future because i mean guitars are they're getting crazy, man. They're they're changing. So I think all it takes is playing on an instrument or a few instruments that are made with like uh, an alternative material that actually sounds better mm-hmm. than what they're used to, and uh, and you know that can open your mind. I think that a lot of the time, what happens is that the guys will will try a guitar made with alternative materials made by some shitty builder, kind of like we were talking about earlier yeah. in this show. And, uh, and then just have the idea that that stuff's all crap, which I kind of thought for a while too, because I used to try guitars made by different boutique shops made by weird uh, materials. And they were always sounded like garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got those Aristides sound incredible. Yeah, they really do. It's, it's a density game, honestly. Like you're trying, I mean, depending on what you're going for with the instrument, the, the electric, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I know there's this tone wood debate and like everyone says the wood, the wood does make a difference to an extent, but like if you compare that to how much like a, a bare knuckle juggernaut pickup versus a, the next bare knuckle juggernaut pickup you buy, the, the inconsistency between those two, how minuscule it is, is more than what your wood would do, honestly, because there's so many different things that can affect the sound of an electric guitar. If you're talking acoustic guitar, it's different because that's the sound is made by the wood moving. It's There's pressure waves being created by the wood moving. You're depending on an electromagnetic interference in your pickups to be transduced into, you know, into three ramp, pushed back out of speakers as pressure waves. So it's it's two different ball games when it comes to that. And I mean you can see like the Les Paul is designed in such a way it has neck angle and the acoustic guitar was the predecessor to that and the lute and all those. And in order to get a parallel string plane on the fretboard, they had to raise the bridge up to put it in an angle. And that's how the, the Les Paul looks, you know. So some people are used to that, but Fender, when the Strats came out, they, you know, everything's flat. The body, the plane to the top of the body, the back of the body, and the top of the fretboard are all parallel. And that's a lot different than um, what that, the Les Pauls and the acoustic guitars and everything else 
had been before it. So it's pretty. And they also sound completely different. Yeah, yeah. It, and you can attribute that to the way that they're built. You know, how much of the strings energy is the body wood absorbing? You know, how much is it reflecting? How much is it? You know, there's so many, so many different variables when it comes to that. It's it's hard to to pinpoint what exactly what it is. But so, do you subscribe to thicker strings, denser wood, thicker tone? Um, I think. Well, most of the the action that happens, if you change your string gauge, it's going to make a, a huge difference in the way it, you know it, it sounds. If you take the way I look at things like that is if you take them to the extreme. Say you're 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 putting a, a one ten gauge bass string on your low, like in tuning it to like you know G or something. That string's going to be extremely tight and it's going to have a really round low sound to it. It's going to emit very clear low frequencies because it, you know, the string can move to recreate those frequencies better. But if you have like a nine gauge string and you tune it to that G, it's gonna sound like absolute dog dick. And just to look at those extremes, you can tell that there's a difference between you know, a 64 and a 68. It might be minuscule, but it definitely is a difference. I try to, to get the tension right. But you know what, you know, there might be, you know where the difference also might be, which I guess scientifically what you're saying also makes perfect sense and I agree. However, you also need the the physical player to be able to hit hard enough to activate the heavier string. Yeah, that's that's true. That's definitely true. I've always been a really hard player, so like I'll I when I'm in drop A, I think I use a sixty eight through thirteen gauge and then I have like a one third, it's probably like a twenty or something like that. I prefer heavier strings because what I'm looking for in a guitar tone is that note. Like I want the note. I want if you're playing a G, I want to hear a G. I don't want to hear a bunch of string rattle and like a faint remnant of a G note that's getting coming through the pickup. I want to hear that woolly note sound. And because when you feed that into an amp, if that is more present than all that other string garble stuff that comes through then that's what's going to hit the amp first, you know, and that's what's going to get amplified first thousands and thousands of times. So it's it's a game between string gauge and pick size, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Pick up how close your pickups are to your strings, how hard your bridge saddles are, how hard your nut saddles are. I've always subscribed to heavier, 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 thicker, 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 but I've always been a really hard player, and the best players mm-hmm. I've ever recorded have always been super hard players, so all that has really helped. My best guitar tones have always come out with super hard players with super thick picks, super thick strings, but Andrew Wade was showing me how he gets a way better tone out of like a medium heavy pick and he was describing that you know that way it doesn't over attack the strings to the point where it ruins ruins things and i guess that might come from what i was saying earlier i guess if you're dealing with players who don't hit that hard maybe giving them super thick picks and super thick strings is actually to their detriment yeah yeah that that definitely uh, what i i have when I record octaves, for example, I have like a, a 60 gauge, or I guess it would be 60 thousandths of an inch or so thick pick, and because I want it to flop, because I don't want the pick to be so sturdy that it's overhitting the string in the middle of the octave and mm-hmm. causing a, a gross, you know, noise that I don't want. So like a thinner pick for octaves is definitely what I'd be using. But if it's like like a, a genty mm-hmm. note, I guess you would call it like an open bow kind of thing. 
I'm going to make sure that they have a thick pick and it's going to be going. And it, it does depend on the string gauge because if it's a thick pick with like a light string, that's bad. That's going to sound like crap. So you, you really have to balance it between what you're doing. But it all comes down to is the player comfortable? Does it sound good? And you got to make sure it's right. So, so I have a question for you about producing other guitar players because uh, you know you're an accomplished guitar player, accomplished guitar builder, accomplished producer. So you could easily just take the guitar and play most of the stuff that your clients bring in, I'm sure. But how do you go about coaching guys when you know that you could just take the guitar and do it yourself? Like, what what are some of your strategies for trying to get them to be able to actually do the job, or do you just take the guitar? Um, in the past, I definitely have taken the guitar in the past. Like, I've been, I've played on multiple records, but I try to make people leave the studio, a, you know, a little bit better than they were when they came in. So when it comes to, like, riffs and stuff, when I hear a riff in pre-pro and I think, oh, wow, that could be really cool if we did this or that, like, I'll kind of keep quiet about it. But, like, when we when we go to track the scratch, I'll, like, ask if they'll give me the guitar and then I'll, you know, I'll lay it down, what I'm thinking. And if they're feeling it, then I'll, you know, sit there and show them what I did to change it. And a lot of the time, people will just be like, okay, well go ahead and you know track it and then I'll it'll stay there for the scratch and they'll have time to learn to work on it you know while we're doing the scratch for the other stuff and tracking drums and bass and all that stuff but I I mean I'm not ashamed to like ask people to you know if I can write on parts most of the time it comes out cool where they they're happy about it and uh I've I've written I've written solos I've done all I've done it all but at the end of the day, people are coming to me as a producer to make their music better. So if I can do that and they're cool with, you know, me having writing input and I mean, some in some cases playing input, I'm not going to say that, like, when you come to record with me, I'm going to take your guitar and play everything. But if you want me to, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> down. But I, I'd, I'd prefer not to because it's it's something that, you know, it's, it's your record. It's your sound. Different people pick differently. They sound differently. Like, it would be wrong for me to you know, do it all the time, but I definitely, I have in the past, but I try to make, you know, I'll, I'll help them out with writing things if I think that I can make the part cooler and then I'll explain to them how I did that, you know, like which scales that I, I used to, to make that part happen, how I analyzed the rhythm part to, and, and, you know, the next chord in the progression to make a cool, like, you know, cross chord melody for a, a nice change. I just, you know, I try to get involved and, and let people kind of, I don't know, teach them a little bit. I try to, you know, become a little bit of a guitar teacher as I, if I need to be. I mean, I've recorded people that will like shred my face off before. So, I mean, I can't get too crazy with it, but. Yeah, of course. So we got to wrap this up. We have one question that we ask all our guests and just want to hear your take on it. Do you have any advice for up and coming producer engineers who are trying to make a name of themselves in this super, super crowded market? What I would say is to, I mean, don't ever stop trying to improve because no matter who you are, you, there's always new things to learn because people's tastes are always changing and audio equipment's always changing. Someone who's used to mixing, if you were stepped in a time machine from 1970 to 2015, you would know a lot less about mixing than a lot of the you know the younger guys that have laptops 
because it, so many things have changed and like there's different ways of doing things and you can't ever let your ego get in the way of that. Also, building your confidence is a big thing because mixing is people trusting you and your opinion to get something done. If you have confidence in yourself and know that you know boosting that 200 hertz on the snare or like not boosting the 200 hertz on the snare is going to get you where you want to be, then I think that's very important because if you're if you're not sure about it, then you're going to battle with yourself and you're going to be sitting there for hours, you know, playing with things. You just have to, you know, educate yourself on what you want to accomplish. The information's out there. There's ton, tons of avenues to get that done. But uh, yeah, just be confident. Keep putting out solid work and don't slack. Yeah, I think don't slack is one of the biggest ones. Yeah. Yeah, definitely don't slack. Well, dude, thanks so much for uh, coming on. It's been enlightening. I still am not going to try to build guitars, and I'll just let people like you do it. <laughs> <laughs> let me know if you want one. We'll hook Man, it up. Man, I, I have no... It's weird. Like, there's some dudes that are just wired internally to be into that kind of stuff. Or like this dude, Matt Brown, who was just on the podcast, came on the creative live. Who's like a drum tech kind of guy. Like you guys are just wired for this kind of stuff. Like I could not care less <laughs> about building guitars or the science behind it. And I'm so glad that people like you exist because uh, you yeah. make life possible for people like me. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad. I'm, I mean, I'm glad to be, that guy for you. Yeah, no. It, glad it, to be your man. You know, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I'm glad you're my man, too. <laughs> We're men together. Yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great having you on. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. All right, man. Take it easy. See you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloom Microphones. Heirloom Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.